Well, hey, I am so glad that you have joined us uh, uh, in groups as near me as San Ramon or Hayward, and then individuals joining us from all over the world. Uh, if you're on the chat right now and live, why don't you tell us uh, where you are joining us from? Uh, but I'm really glad to meet with you today to study the New Testament Gospel of John. Uh, John chapter 5. And today in chapter 5, uh, well, let's go there now, and I'll talk about it a little bit, and then we'll look at the verses. Now, the Apostle John was nearing the end of his life when he wrote the gospel that bears his name. In the final chapter, he wrapped it up by telling the reader that if everything Jesus said and did were written down, even the whole world would not have room for the books which would be written. That was John's challenge. He had spent a lifetime reflecting on all that Jesus had taught him. Uh, he had no doubt read what Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written earlier. And with this in mind, he took a completely different approach, selecting only what he had determined to be the most significant events and the most impactful statements Jesus made. So when we read John's gospel, we must constantly ask ourselves, now why did he include this scene while leaving out so many others that Matthew included or that Luke included? What is unique about this passage that John is trying to communicate to the reader about Christ's mission? And that's what we're talking about right now. This series is called On Mission. Jesus came on mission. And because we're his followers, his mission becomes our mission. All right, so let's see what he's doing in John chapter 5, where uh, he comes to a, a, a small public pool of water in Jerusalem known as Bethesda. You can say that, Bethesda. Now, Beth means place of or house of, and then the rest of the world, the word is the suffix. So this word means, depending on your, if you're an Aramaic or Greek, a place of mercy or a place of grace. And that's the perfect place for Jesus to show up. So this particular pool, uh, surrounded by five beautiful arches, was fed by a mineral spring which gurgled up from time to time, disturbing the surface of the water. And there were legends around this uh, when the water would be disturbed. Uh, the legend was that the periodic stirring of the water was evidence that healing angels had arrived and were hovering over the pool. Consequently, there was always a large group of people with varying disabilities gathered there because they believed this legend of invisible angels disturbing the water. And uh, legend had it that the first person in the pool after the invisible angels stirred it would be healed. Now, there is no historical evidence that anyone ever was healed but these types of things take on a life of their own. So there was always a big group of people with disabilities gathered, um, just waiting, hoping that they would be right there when the healing angels arrived and signaled an all swim. Okay, so in today's story, Christ the true healer shows up at this place where people already believe healing could occur and he meets a man who had been incapacitated for 38 years. Let's watch this encounter now with permission from the producers of The Chosen. 
That's him. Who? Him. The one who's been here the longest. But doesn't belong. The sad one. Shalom. Shalom. I have a question for you. For me. I don't have many answers, but I'm listening. Do you want to be healed? Who are you? We'll get to that later. But my question remains. Will you take me to the water? Look, I'm having a really bad day. You've been having a bad day for a long time. Sir, I have no one to help me into the water when it's stirred up. And when I do get close, the others step down in front of me. And so... Look at me. Look at me. Do you want to be healed? So let's go. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. to walk, like he said. Don't forget your bed. Why does this matter? Because you're not coming back here. That life is over. Everything changes now. Yo! It's Shabbat. What are you doing? Torah forbids carrying a mat on Shabbat? Not Torah, the oral tradition. Yes. Transporting objects from one domain to another violates Shabbat. The man who healed me. Do you not realize what just happened here? Why are you trying to make this about Shabbat? He said to me, take up your bed and walk. Who did? Who told you that? He did. I don't know. He didn't tell me his name. No. Of course not. He performs a magic trick and tells you to commit a sin. A false prophet. This will be reported. You report whatever you want. I'm standing on two legs. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I need to go find my brother. 
Wow, it's so great that Jesus healed this guy, rescuing him from daily life at Bethesda. Can you imagine this environment? A place where everyone there was sick with one thing or another, and everyone was after the same thing that this man was after. They were waiting, just waiting, watching the water for any sign of movement, and then the mad rush would start. It was every man for himself. Get in, get in, get in. Uh, get there first. Beat your neighbor to the water. Yuck. That's terrible. Let me ask you, do you think this daily life of Bethesda would build your faith in God or destroy it? I mean, think about it. What kind of God operates this way? What kind of God would send a few angels out at random moments in time with no warning, only to heal the fastest person to the pool? Why was only one person healed? And what would this mad scramble to be first into the pool do to your faith in other people, uh, people you had come to think of as your friends? When the pool was calm, they were your friends. But when the water bubbled up, they were your competitors. Look out, you could get trampled. I think hanging around this pool too long wouldn't be good for a person. It would rob them of any faith they once had in a merciful God and any love for human nature. Your soul would waste away along with your body. Honestly, I believe Bethesda was not a place to recover and get well. Hanging around there too long would make you worse. But then Jesus arrives. He talks to this guy and asks him a most unusual question. Do you remember what Jesus asked him? What was it? What was it, remember? Yeah, you got it. He asked, do you want to be healed? What kind of question is that? Of course the guy wants to be healed. Doesn't everyone want to be healed? At first glance, this question seems, I don't know, downright insensitive. But the thing about Jesus is he actually knows the human condition. He was aware of the toll taken by 38 long years of seemingly hopeless disability. This poor guy had suffered a lifetime after something terrible had happened to him. A sickness, a paralysis, maybe an accident, a trauma that had resulted in a permanent disability. Now, at one point, he had been brought here by friends or family to seek healing in the pool. But, as he says now, he has no one to help him. He's alone. Very much alone. I wonder at what point you stop making any effort at recovery. How many times over the years had the water stirred and his hope sparked, only to be extinguished by the inability to scramble quickly enough? So Jesus asks him, hey, do you still want to be healed? Man, the man might be thinking, what a cruel question. Is this guy taunting me? Is he saying that I have this disability because I want it? 
Well, whatever he thought of Jesus' question, uh, he didn't answer it. When Christ asks him if he wants to be healed, he immediately offers the reason why it won't happen. I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Resignation is a, a dangerous thing. And hopelessness is as dark as hell. Now, at one point, this man and whoever brought him here had faith. At one point, he believed he could be healed at Bethesda. He brought his mat and he settled in. But now, those disappointed faith muscles were atrophied. Then this Galilean rabbi shows up offering no sympathy and asks an inappropriate question. Then Jesus gives him a command. Get up, roll up your mat, let's go. I gotta say, sometimes Christ's love doesn't feel very loving, does it? But Jesus did love him. He knew the man needed more than a sympathetic ear. He needed to be coached up and out. I also love how Jesus didn't give him what he asked for. Jesus didn't pick him up and carry him over to the pool. I mean, that's what the guy wanted, right? I just need some help to get into the pool, he had said. I love Jesus for not giving the man what he asked for. I wonder how many times I've asked God for the wrong thing and was initially very disappointed when I didn't receive that, but later I was thankful. Thank God that his plan B is so much better than my plan A. How about you? Can you think of a time that God didn't provide for you what you specifically asked for? For me, I think back to 1991. That was before some of you were born. I was a dad, married with three kids. I was in a, a job that had once been really sweet, but it had turned sour. I needed to escape a toxic church staff. But as much as Brenda and I prayed, no opportunities arose. Now, I had been taught to not leave a job until after another job was lined up. And I was responsible for a family of five, so I just stayed at my own miserable pool of Bethesda, watching the water stir for others, but not being able to get there myself. Now, a great opportunity in Colorado near my parents opened up. I told the Lord how perfect the situation would be for us. But then nothing came of it. One day, the Holy Spirit clearly led Brenda and me away from the old job, but out into nothing. Our faith was being tested by the question God was asking us, Steve, do you trust me? Do you think I can provide for you? And get up, take up your mat, and let's go. What? Let's go. But how, Lord? Uh, go where? Silence. And then the question came again. Do you trust me to fix this situation? Well, it was a struggle. Thank God Brenda and I obeyed Christ's command to stand up and walk away from our own Bethesda 
without knowing what this new journey would hold or even how God would provide. What he provided was jobs that paid our bills. What he provided was a living room full of friends who wanted to form a church. And as soon as we officially committed ourselves to form Cornerstone, guess who called the next day? The church in Colorado. We hadn't heard from them for six months. Now they were offering me the job that I had wanted so badly months before. But Cornerstone was in motion. Thank God he didn't give us what we had wanted. All right, back to this man who just wanted to get into the pool he believed would heal him. Thank God for sending Jesus that day, offering so much more, asking him if he still really wanted to get well, with the implication that this guy needed to want it in order for it to happen. Christ once again shows that he expects the sick person to demonstrate faith. You may have heard the, the story of Jesus that day in the synagogue up north. He sees a man with one hand hanging useless at his side. Some trauma had badly mangled the man's hand, rendering it useless. Jesus' words to him also appeared, at first, insensitive. He calls him out, telling him, get up and stand in front of everyone. Surprisingly, the man obeyed. Stretch out your hand, Jesus said. Do what? Stretch out the hand that you normally hide from everyone. And the man obeyed, and as he stretched it out, he was healed. On another day, there was an anemic woman, severely weakened from 12 years of hemorrhaging blood, who was only healed after she summoned the strength to find Jesus and reach out and touch him. I wonder, would the, would the healing had occurred had she not acted? We'll never know. But the more I know about him, I see how often Jesus always involves us in our own miracles. Like in today's story at Bethesda, where he asks a lot of this guy, expecting him to try to stand up after 38 years of not being able to stand up. Jesus challenges him to ignore what his muscle memory is telling him and just get up and walk out of there. Well, that's going to take courage. I've been told that courage is found in the tension between what is real today and what God could do tomorrow. I have a good friend who uh, often calls people to courage. Uh, he's an experienced psychologist. He told me the other day that, like Jesus, he often asks people what they want and why they're seeing a therapist, what they expect from these conversations. As they share the, the tough and often unfair circumstance they're in, uh, maybe the story of abuse or, or betrayal, he listens patiently, asking himself, even praying about, how to guide these conversations toward health. He asks a lot of questions, questions that gently challenge the other person's perceptions, their assumptions, and ultimately even question their repeated behaviors. Some of his clients start with more of a desire to be comforted than a desire to change. They may 
also subconsciously be seeking sympathy over real solutions. Yet they have come wanting to be healed. So he coaches them to stop doing things the same way. That is, if they expect a different result. He tells his clients, there's no way you'll get better if you don't identify the changes you need to make in, in how you think and in what you do. And I know firsthand that that is scary, often painful. It's almost always easier not to change. There's an interesting Greek word often used in the Gospels. It's the word translated healing. Now the Greek is therapuo. Say that, therapuo. Okay, what English word does that sound like? Right, therapy. So when Matthew tells us in chapter four that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and, and healing every disease and sickness among the people, Matthew uses the word therapuo, therapy, making Jesus a, a therapist, a very good therapist, whose comprehensive therapy heals body, mind, and soul. So that's why Jesus asked this man what he wants. For therapy to work, the person has to want to be healed. Notice also how the sick man was still at Bethesda, even though Bethesda hadn't helped him one bit. He still stayed there. I'm thinking some rogue hope still resided deep inside him, even after all the disappointment. I think that's what Jesus identified and spoke to that day. Dormant faith. Dormant faith. Dormant is a powerful word. It's a word that summons up images of a potential that's, that's asleep. Hey, have you ever heard of the Anasazi Indians, uh, the ancient cliff dwellers of Mesa Verde, Colorado? Uh, yeah, these ancient, uh, inhabitants of North America, uh, what we call the Southwest, uh, were there about a thousand years ago. And they, 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 they built these pueblos uh, beneath these overhanging cliffs. You can see the pictures here. It's amazing. Uh, some of the villages had more than 150 rooms. Now the Anasazi farmed the mesa, uh, the mesa tops, but then lived in these alcoves for hundreds and hundreds of years, finally abandoning them in a, the 1300s. Now, they, they, they stayed undiscovered until the 1800s when people were scrambling west and they discovered uh, down near Dove Creek, Colorado, these amazing, unbelievable ruins that were still filled with artifacts. One of the things they found were these huge food storage rooms where pots like these were filled with what looked like small pebbles. Someone took another look at the pebbles and decided to soak them in water and discovered that they were actually beans. Someone else decided to cook the soaked beans and eat them. After 500 years in a dry clay pot, they're still edible. Then someone planted some of them and they sprouted and grew after lying dormant for 500 years. Anasazi beans soon became a modern cash crop. 
They are still all the rage in the Southwest. They taste great, and more importantly, they don't give you gas, which your wife will appreciate. And what does this have to do with today's story at the Bethesda pool? Well, I think this guy's faith was a lot like an old pot of dried up Anasazi beans. There was still life inside those rock hard beans, but you'd never know it until Jesus came and soaked them. He soaked this man's dormant faith in healing water. He planted those beans in the soil of his own faith, and then the plant sprung up. Instead of stirring the water in the pool, Jesus did something better. He stirred the man's soul. He stirred up his sleeping, dormant faith. That is so amazing. The Bible has a word for that. Psalm 42, deep calling to deep. It's like the deepness of who God is reaches into the deepness of our soul, even to areas that we thought might be dead, but are really just dormant. And like, there's a story where Jesus heals a girl and everyone said, she's dead. And Jesus says, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. She's only dormant, he says. And then he speaks to the little girl and she sits up and everyone is amazed. Oh, I have goosebumps right now because, you know, that is what Jesus has done for so many of us. Jesus asked the guy, can you dig down deep and tell me if you can hear me talking to you in there? Can you hear me calling out your faith? Do you still want to get well? Well, I think Jesus knew the guy wanted it. He just wanted the man to remember his own faith. He wanted him to commit once again to the impossible, to take the risk again. The possibility that he would struggle to gain his feet and fall once more in front of other people. You know, belief in a miracle is always a risk. The odds are always against it. But we know how this episode ends. Jesus told him to get up, and he did. When he decided that he wanted to get well, he decided that he was going to choose a new identity. We still don't know his name, but uh, when we get to heaven, we'll find out he had a name and he had a future after Bethesda. Uh, and he, a life lived of, of health, of following after Jesus. Sadly, uh, for, for some of the people lying at the pool of Bethesda, for, uh, I think that for some of them, illness might have become their permanent identity. It was not, hey, I have a dis disabling challenge each day um, that I have to overcome each day, as much as it might have become, I'm a disabled person. Um, sadly, I imagine some of those people led like that. You know, we, we see that in our day as well. Oh, not as much with those that with physical disability. Most of our f friends with physical challenges lead the way uh, with hope and faith. They inspire us. They, they challenge us. They accomplish big things because they have learned not to allow the disability to be their identity. But sometimes you will hear a person let their weakness be their identity. Um, that's just how I am, they'll say. I can't change. 
My mom was like that. My dad was like that. My family's like that. I'm like that. You're just going to have to accept that about me. I'm not saying I, I like it. I'm just saying that I can't change. Friends, that is not the way we need to think. We need to identify with this guy. You know, Jesus asked him what he wants. Now, the man initially blames his circumstances for why he's stuck, but then he responds to Jesus' next words to, uh, to coach him to take faith-filled action to get himself unstuck. And this man responded. Honestly, I, I don't believe he could have gotten unstuck without Jesus there, but he did play a role as Jesus healed him. He participated in his own healing, taking a risk not allowing his history to define his destiny, like so many of you have done. John tells us that there were a multitude lying by the pool that day waiting for something to change. Friend, I wonder if you've just been waiting for something to change, but not realizing that Jesus is there, confronting you to change. You don't have to settle for your lot in life. You can turn it out over to Jesus. You don't have to just sit there and wait for the water to stir before everything can change for you. Jesus brings living water. He doesn't need the water of your circumstances to stir. You don't either. You, you, can, you can allow Jesus to pull you up and out. You can leave your past behind. You can step into a faith-filled, promise-filled, overcoming, victorious Christian life. That's your future. Your history doesn't define your destiny. You can answer Jesus' question today and get up and get moving. Uh, it's true, you can't change the past. But Jesus and you can create a new future. He's speaking to you today, isn't he? He's saying to all of us, Behold, get up, take your mat, walk. Jesus is asking you, do you want that? You know, he can give you a better future, but you have to want it. You have to want it enough to leave the comfort of what you know and embrace the unknown future he has for you before you can see what the future really is. You don't have to settle for where you are right now. Your greatest days are still ahead of you if you're willing to take risk. God has a future for you if you're willing to hear his voice and respond. God has a good plan for you that he brought right here. You exist for a purpose, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Like the men who confronted this guy for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Did you see that? Instead of celebrating with him, they scolded him for not doing things their way. You know, he was just threatening to them for Jesus to not ask their permission and work under their authority and play by their man-made rules. Let's read it together, starting in John 5, verse 16. Do you have it? John 5, 16. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said, my father's always at his work. And this very day, I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, I think John tells us this to show us that Jesus was doing way more that day than just healing one man. Jesus was saying that every day he was working together with his Father, 
to heal the entire world. Keep reading, look at verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son could do nothing himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Ha! And now look at what Jesus is promising in verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. That's what Jesus is up to. More than just healing us of our daily limitations, more than even coaching us to take risks, he's taking us all from death to life. He's transforming us from a limiting life to an eternal one. That's really great, isn't it? Isn't it? That's why back in John chapter 1, verse 4, the apostle opened this gospel with this statement. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Oh, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own, they did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, that's you, Cornerstone, to those who believed in his name, that's you, my friend. He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. That's our Jesus, the one who came to change the world, to take water and make it into wine, to find us and ask us, do you want to get well? Well, so much to discuss today. But before we enter into our discussion, let me pray the prayer of faith over anyone the Holy Spirit has been wooing to get today uh, around something he wants you to recover from. Maybe he won't heal you in the way that you asked him to heal you. Maybe the healing will be way more comprehensive than what you could even Imagine for you to just let go of that, but then take whatever risk that he calls you to uh, as, as, as he asks you to, to step up and out of anything that has held you back, anything that you've allowed to restrict you from your obedience to him. All right, let me pray for you. Father God, with faith we approach you with the access that you've given us through Jesus. Jesus, we, we are just so grateful to you that you came. And as we read these, these stories slowly, we begin to see really what you were about. It was way more than healing a few people and, and changing a few people's mind about scripture or religion. No, it was, it was this whole thing of, uh, uh, of you saying, I, I want each of you to change. I love each of you equally, but you have got to be transformed into my likeness in order for us to not only spend eternity together, but for you to fully realize your potential here on earth. Lord, we have so much work to do. 
Our world is really a broken place right now and people are so isolated, whether it's from the pandemic or the politics, you're calling us to unity. You're calling us to healing. You're calling us to step up and out of any limitation that we've allowed. You're calling us to yourself to follow you. It's life or death. It's really whether we enjoy our life here or we just are waiting for death. It's really whether we uh, look forward to our life in the future with you or whether we still wonder if that even exists. Jesus, whatever you're calling each and every one of us to today, whatever you're calling us to as a church, we want to say yes. Do you want to be healed, you ask? And Cornerstone says, yes, we do. So heal us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.